<clears throat> All right, everybody. Good evening. Good evening, and welcome back to where am I? Forgot my questions box. There it is. Whoa, where it is? It's over here. Okay. Whew. All right. Excellent. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for asking. Yes, my kids are doing better. Um, uh, my, my kids are doing better, and I think I finally got the smell out of my wife's car. So things are good. Things are good. Uh, the, this is it's been a particularly glamorous parenting experience. Uh, those of you who are already parents know what I'm talking about. Those of you who aren't either are glad or suddenly trepidatious. But anyway, it's it's even I can tell you it's even more glamorous than you've been led to believe. So yeah, no things are good. Thank you very much. So, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, I had to cancel last night's Exploring the Lord of the Rings class because, like, at 9.15, right before class was supposed to start, uh, um, uh, we had a, a little vomiting issue here in our house. Actually, again, not our house, in my wife's car, uh, which was even more fun. But anyhow, so yeah, it's it's all we're all good now, though, so that thank you very much for your concern. All right, so... Uh, tonight we're gonna, uh, we're jumping back in. I got to see so many, uh, uh, so many, uh, uh, lovely people here. Good to see Kay, I haven't seen you live in a while. Good to see you again. Um, anyway, so it's all good. Okay. Um, so quick announcement before we begin. Don't forget that we are creeping our way through the month of May now, which means we are coming closer and closer to the deadline for Mythmoot, which is now, what is it? Ooh, look at that. It's just over a month shy of Mythmoot now. Very exciting. So please do uh, get on it if you can. Uh, come to Mythmoot <clears throat> June 21st through 24th, if I'm getting my dates right. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, so I hope you'll be able to join us. We've got a lot of people coming. It's going to be uh, just amazing. Myth Mood is fantastic. My favorite event of the year. The thing I look forward to all year long. Uh, the thing that I have loved so much that we've uh, tried to expand our regional moods just to give people a little glimpse of the awesomeness that is Myth Mood. But of course, it is only, even those are only a glimpse uh, of uh, how much fun Myth Mood is. So I hope that uh, people will be able to join us. It is possible, of course, to join us for only part of the time. If you can just come for uh, for for a little bit of it, that's, that's you know, there are people who are coming in for just a day or two. Of course, that's not quite as much fun as being there for the whole time, but better that than nothing. Um, but anyway, I hope that uh, many of you will be able to uh, uh, to, to come to Mythmoot this year. Um, and don't forget to look at our events page. I was showing you the events page last week uh, to sort of stay current on that. I mentioned last week our uh, how to present at conferences uh, discussion uh, to sort of to give people... This is just something... So many people take this for granted. So many people... Like, it's just not a part... Like, nobody ever talks about this. Nobody ever actually gives advice on how to... You know, everybody... It's like, well, you need to read papers at conferences, and then they act like everybody knows how to do that, right? And it's so not true. There's so many people who really have no idea what. The, I mean, people who have been scholars for many years who are still quite bad at it, um, because again, nobody talks about this. It's not people don't even think of it really as a skill that they should train for, but it totally is. And especially if you've if you've thought about doing it, if you're new to it, or again, you kind of considered maybe you know you have an idea of something you might like to present or or sort of lead discussion on at at a regional moot or something, or at, or even at Mythmoot, 
you know, but, uh, you know, you're not sure it's something that you can do or, you know, whatever, you know, you're a little shy about it. Really, really useful uh, uh, session. So, again, go to signumuniversity.org slash events uh, and you'll be able to um, um, you'll be able to uh, uh, to to uh, get access to the to that to that session tomorrow. So. All right. Uh, let us. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things going on, but I, I sort of again commend that events page to you to see all the other things that are coming up soon. Um, uh, so let us move forward because today we're going to catch up. We're going to catch up, and we're going to be through chapter three of the of uh, of part three, uh, working our way through book five. Uh, as uh, as Tolkien gets back into gear. Uh, tonight's class I called Finding the Story Grown, because of course you'll remember that he left the story, he you know set, he set the writing of The Lord of the Rings aside for about a year and a half here, um, you know, between 1940, in late 1944, and he comes back to it in 1946. Uh, so it's been quite some time. Um, and he had gotten right up to, he did that stuff with Sam and Frodo trying to get down uh, the M and Wheel, right? We, we, we did that, you know, he did that. And he did the stuff with, um, you know, all those versions of the arrival in Harrowdale and the changes of what the, what the, what the, what Dunharrow was and, uh, and, and what that meant, you know, from Party Cave to, uh, uh, to Secret Temple to um, uh, to finally ominous cave which may or may not contain some sort of relic or something like that right but it's going to be ominous and nobody was ever going to go in so it's it's now the unparty cave um, all that stuff um, that you uh, uh, that you have uh, you know th- th- that we've been looking at um, is where he stopped right so he, he ended with all those things um, and then what I find really uh, really cool, really interesting is seeing what happens when he comes back to it, right? So the first part of class tonight, we're going to look at a series of outlines that he did, outlining, projecting book five. Because remember, book five is the last, everybody knows, the book five, this is going to be five books long, right? Book five is going to be the last book. So he's projecting book five to, you know, this is him mapping out the whole end of the story. We're going to look at several versions of that. And this, again, back in 1944, before he stopped, uh, before he let this go for a while, and he's projecting forward and projecting forward. Then we're going to see what happens when he comes back to it after a couple years. Uh, and I think that some of the differences are quite striking, right? It's amazing to see uh, some of the ways in which the story, not just the ways in which the story has grown and matured, but like the direction in which it has grown and matured uh, during the time, looking at the elements that are suddenly there when he comes back to it in 1946 compared to the things that were not there yet, right, that were still totally absent in 1944 is is really interesting, actually. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. And then, of course, we'll get into uh, some of the details of the first chapter, right, of the, the Minas Tirith chapter, the arrival of Pippin. Uh, and Gandalf in Minas Tirith. So, okay, um, let's uh, let's move forward. Then let's go back to it. So, our first outline. So, this is him wrapping it out chapter by chapter. And you guys all know how uh, how endearing these projections are when he's saying, you know, what these chapters are going to look like. Okay, so chapter one of book five. Gandalf goes to Minas Tirith, mustering of forces. War breaks out. Gondor driven back. No sign of riders. Okay, so we're going to have initial battles, right? Gondor driven back. Presumably that's going to be... Because he originally, you'll recall, um, his initial concept 
well, it's hard to use initial now since things have changed so much, right? But the beginning of this last, of this latest stage, we talked about last time when Minas Tirith, you know, the old, the the original conception of this battle at the end, where Minas Tirith was in the middle with the forces of Isengard and the forces of Mordor attacking it, from, you know, besieging it from either side, right? So I'm not talking about that. When I say initial, I'm not, I'm not counting that. In the, in sort of the new version that we were looking at last week. It was the Southrons, right? It was going to be the army of the Haradrim uh, that were going to be coming up. The Swertings were the ones attacking the city primarily, right? Um, and he shifted that around. So he had, you know, he's decided that the primary force is going to be the force coming out of Minas Morgul now, and those that are coming up from the south are going to be uh, they're still going to be a major factor, right? But they're going to be primarily a sort of, well, not a distraction, but they're going to be the ones coming down by the coast, right? Um, so, so he'd already, so presumably when he's saying here, uh, Gondor driven back, that means Gondor driven back from Osgiliath, right? So we're coming in to, uh, have them besiege the city. And again, you'll recall from last week that this is already a change. His, in the, 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 the concept in this, in this new version, this concept began with a, an offensive war being waged by Gondor, which is, I think is really interesting, right? With them charging out and attacking and eventually going and all the way taking Minas Morgul, right? It was a uh, <laughs> sort of a war of aggression on the part of Gondor, uh, striking boldly against the enemy. And now, it's, it, but we saw him decide, no, we're going to shift that around. He's going to actually make Minas Tirith besiege. It was be, there was battle before the walls, but it wasn't even really besieged uh, last time. Um, so okay, so he's uh, um, he's so that's uh, so that's 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 but but again, the basic feature now: defensive war. The army is coming forth from Minas Morgul. The the Minas Tirith is going to be besieged, and the riders are going to be late. Okay, all right. So we've got that. Um, that mustering of forces here again. I think we're seeing that the idea of the allegiances and people coming in um, that's being shifted from. Uh, uh, from Dunharrow, where it was originally, where we had, like, remember, we had not only rangers, but Dunlendings and Bjornings showing up, right, in order to, well, I should say Woodmen of Mirkwood, who are probably Bjornings, um, uh, showing up to kind of help in with the battle, giving it that distinct, a, a distinct uh, Battle of Dagger, like, you know, Battle of the Last Alliance, right, kind of feel to it. Remember the you know the places where he says that every every living creature like had some representative there at the War of the Last Alliance. I mean it was a big deal, right? I mean it was it was the global fight against Sauron, uh, and so that impulse to have the Dunlendings and the Bjornings and 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 the Rangers all show up there at Dunharrow originally uh, seemed to be that same kind of impulse, right? He wants to have, this is you know every all enemies of of the one enemy are going to band together uh, and join in here. And then, of course, he shifted that uh, to Gondor, but we lose the Dunlendings and the Bjornings uh, fairly quickly, right? But okay, all right, so we can see he's still thinking in those directions. Chapter 2. Theoden comes to Dunharrow. Beacons. Messengers arrive from Minas Tirith, also from far afield, reporting orcs across river in Wold. Theoden rides on the evening of February 8th. Eowyn goes with him. Gambling is left in command in Westfold. The old Seneschal of Edoras in Eastfold, Dunharrow. Okay. So, there's a lot, there's a big deal made in these 
early drafts and outlines about that northern army, right? There are three armies that are launching their attack at one time here, right? Well, there's more than that, right? As we know that there are also, there's an army coming out of Mirkwood and attacking Lothlorien and everything as well. But anyway, at least here, for, you know, down here in the south, we've got the army coming in from Minas Morgul, the army coming up from the south, and the army coming in from the north, crossing into the Wold. So Rohan itself is under assault uh, very actively. It's interesting that in the final text, this gets... Well, I mean, it's happening, right? It's still there, but it gets kind of downplayed a little bit. Uh, It's one of those things which Tolkien talked about a lot in these planning stages, and he emphasized it a lot in the planning stages. But in the actual narrative, as the narrative develops, there's that moment when when, uh, Theoden receives news, right, of orcs in the world, and he says, right on, right on, right? And it's a big deal. You know, orcs are invading your home country. He has not only every excuse not to go down to Minas Tirith, uh, uh, but he has, like, plenty of really good reasons not to do that. In fact, you could easily make the argument that uh, uh, that Theoden is being irresponsible, right, as King of the Mark, uh, to leave you know, an invading army of orcs in the Wold uh, and carry on down to Minas Tirith, right? So, but but he does that. But that, that element is a really important element here. And again, if anything, it seems to me that that, that decision by Theoden is something that's being emphasized, you know, that's, that's playing in Tolkien's mind a really important part, uh, is forming a really important part of his story. Um, and Eowyn goes with him. And remember, the last we saw of Eowyn, she's not only going with him, she's like leading a... Uh, a squadron of shield maidens, right? She's like rally the, you know, you know, call up the women, right? Um, bring in, bring in the reserves, bring in the shield maidens. Um, so there's no, I don't recall any evidence to suggest that Aon is in disguise yet. Um, and I love Gamli being left in command. That's good. I like Gamli. Okay, oh, sorry, and I forgot. I, I didn't read off chapter two. Aragorn and Aemir ride off, ride to beat off orcs. They come back and rejoin main body, reporting that Ents and Lorien elves have driven back the north thrust. They ride to Minas Tirith. Okay, so we're going to have... So Thanon is not going to go off, but he is going to deal with it, right? You know, we have this... One thing that I notice in these... Um, in these early, as he's thinking through this stuff, um, sort of reflecting back on many conversations I've had in the past where people sort of comparing and contrasting Tolkien's interest in military strategy and tactics um, and how much less Tolkien is interested in military and military strategy and tactics compared to you know, somebody like George R. R. Martin, for instance, who's very interested in battle tactics. Um, or, I mean, there are lots of, lots of examples of, uh, you know, modern fantasy writers who are much more interested uh, in tactics and strategy than, uh, than, than Tolkien is. There's really very little in terms of battlefield tactics that he ever uh, really talks about. Um, what's interesting to me to see is that we can see him thinking in sort of bigger strategics, you know, as he's working through, just as he's kind of, jugg- just as he's juggling the chronology and everything like that, we can also see him like 
putting armies on the board, right? And uh, and figuring out how the larger st- strategic moves happen, and just as again that determination to kind of work every, make sure everything works out neatly, and that he's accounted for everything as far as the chronology is concerned, and all of the different timelines all working up and making sense individually and together. So too he is trying to make sort of the story works work strategically, and his strategic you know from both sides. And his strategic efforts are one of the things that's kind of driving the story here. There is Aragorn and Amir riding off to beat off the orcs. That's something that seems to be a strategic necessity. If there's a major army already invaded, like the the army of Rohan isn't going to get very far if they've advanced all the way in, right? So we have to... We have to somehow beat them off. So is he actually... Is there going to be another battle? Is he thinking he's going to have a battle? Aragorn and Amir on the one side, and then the Ents and the Elves of Lorien coming in um, on the other flank. Is that, was he going to actually, was that battle going to happen? I can't imagine he was going to tell that the story of that battle in any detail as he's planning to fit all of this, including the arrival in Dunharrow, the messengers from Minas Tirith, the muster of Rohan, and then the riding off to beat off the orcs, and then coming back and rejoining the main body, reporting that the Ensign Lorien Elves... I think that, that reporting suggests, no, he's not going to describe this battle. That's still a lot to happen in one chapter, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, Tony, I agree. We did see this at Helm's Deep. The same, you know, we do see him thinking through things, sort of both tactically and strategically. And we do see how a lot of the basic flow of the narrative is really informed by that. He's not interested in describing it particularly. Um, he does much more of the sort of description of what it looks like from the perspective of the combatants, right? Um, what's it like being on the wall at Helm's Deep? That's what we get in the story, not you know, this sort of bird's-eye view of the tactical situation, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, right, then they arrived to Minas Tirith. Okay. Charge of the Riders of Rohan breaks siege. Chapter 3. Charge of the Riders of Rohan breaks siege. Death of Theoden and Eowyn in killing the Nazgul king. Gondor destroys ships of Harad and crosses into Ithilien. Now, a couple things here. First, the battle is a, the breaking of a siege, right? Um, it ends. It's going to end up being a little bit more dramatic than that, right? That there's. It's going to be an all-out assault, which is just about like the gates just crash down and then Rohan arrives, right? So, um, they're in full-out assault. It's not just they're besieging it, right? So, again, let me just make sure to clarify my terms here. Breaks siege sounds like sounds like the army is besieging the city, which doesn't, which means they're not attacking it. Right, they're just they're just investing it, right? Which is a word that he uses in uh, in chapter three, uh, talking about Minas, the Minas Tirith chapter. Um, uh, he so to besiege something just means to surround it with your army so that nobody can get out. Um, 
to assault it means to be attacking the walls. So in the published text, they're assaulting the walls when Rohan comes in. So battle is already engaged, and they come in unexpectedly uh, and turn the tide of the battle. And then the men of uh, Gondor, led by Imrahil, ride, you know, uh, do a sortie out of the city uh, in order to join the Rohirrim on the field. Um, them breaking a siege is different, and I'm wondering if he's conceiving of that differently. I mean, obviously it's going to be a battle scene, uh, but is it just going to be nothing but the charge of the Rohirrim? Is is you know is this going to be the full thing? Because Gondor destroys ships of Harad and crosses into Ithilien. Again, this sounds like. I don't know, we're kind of back to... I'm I'm not sure how to explain this exactly. It sounds like we're kind of going back to the offensive, or rather, we're sort of still on the spectrum, right? Uh, Gondor was attacking first, before, right? Uh, And driving their way through the enemy. Then he's decided, no, they should get all the way to Minas Tirith, and they they should besiege the city. But he's still, like, just, then the siege gets broken by the Rohirrim, and then off they go, right? They burn the ships of of the Haradrim, right? The Haradrim are done um, when the Rohirrim come in. You will recall that the journey of Aragorn or possibly Aemir, he was undecided which one was going to do it, through that pass over the mountains to go down into the Blackroot Vale... Uh, was a purely tactical maneuver, right? That was just that was a strategic maneuver um, to come into to, to to attack the southern army unexpectedly. So he was going to take a force across the mountains in order to catch them by surprise, help to deliver the coastlands, and then come up to uh, to Minas Tirith. So there was no no prophecy there. There was no supernatural anything. There were no shadow. There was no shadow host. It was just to like pull a pull a Hannibal in the Alps, cross over uh, the mountains in a place where nobody, you know, so that an army is coming in from a direction nobody expects, take the Haradrim by surprise, um, and wipe them out. I don't know if that's still happening. Has he abandoned that entirely? Um, both Aragorn and Aemir are riding north now to fight the orcs in the Wold, so they don't seem to be available to do that little maneuver, and we don't have any. Um, uh, we, we don't have any reference to that, right? Stephen, I agree with you. Stephen says, uh, it sounds like it's not going to be even close. Once the Rohirrim arrive, the good guys have a, a huge upper hand. Um, uh, yeah, kind of like that, actually. Um, that is more or less what it, uh, um, what it sounds like. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Um, it's, Initially, again, initially they were going to be victorious. Um, you know, we even through the Black Gates. You know, them driving victoriously into Gorgoroth is what we saw in those in those earlier versions of it. Um, the odds are swaying more and more against the men of Minas Tirith as the as he revises. Um, it's becoming more and more of an underdog story. But Steve and I agree, they're still not fully underdogs. Um, and yes, Tony, th- that's another really great way to say it. Tony says, this doesn't sound like a catastrophe. It just sounds like victory. Yes, it, this, it, that's exactly. Um, I don't see anything. I mean, apart from, are the riders going to come? Not until the last second. Here come the riders. That's the only catastrophic moment um, or sort of element, I guess, in this whole story. After that, they arrive. Yeah, then they just win. They burn the ships. 
we're done. We don't even need to send anybody down to the Black Root Vale. Who who wants to do that, right? Um, uh, no need to go anywhere near the Stone of Erech. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, not only is the blood of Numenor not spent, it sounds like it's hardly even diluted. Uh, yeah, possibly. Possibly. Okay. Chapter 4. Sack of Minas Morgul. Sack. We're just going to sack it. Right? That's it. We are taking out Minas Morgul. Victorious Gandalf pursues on to Daggerlad. Elves of Lorien and Ents come from north. Parley with more something or other. Sauron's messenger. So Sauron's messenger is going to name Black something or other. That's that's, that's not a big surprise. Uh, but it's interesting that Sauron is not doing it himself anymore. They were parleying with Sauron personally, originally. They're not. He's now sending a messenger, right? Uh, who gets a name? We don't know what it is. More something or other. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, I saw, sorry, I saw that note, uh, Kay, about your lament for the death of Eowyn. Yeah, no, Eowyn is, she's been consistently scheduled for death uh, at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, it's it's really kind of interesting, actually. Remember, his very first impulse, Eowyn was totally Aragorn's future wife, initially, right? When her character was created, you know, and she and, she and you know, Aragorn were, like, exchanging those smoldering looks and stuff, right? That was happening in the very early drafts. But by the time he finished drafting that chapter, by the time he finished drafting the King of the Golden Hall, he's pitched that, right? You know, he's like, no, no, no. Aragorn, Eowyn, not into each other, actually, right? Um, and I think it's really fascinating with a, thinking of Eowyn's character that his he shifts away from his first impulse of future Queen of Gondor, who might still have been an awesome butt-kicking warrior, I, I think. Like, I'm not saying that that's mutually exclusive from future Queen of Gondor. Um, but anyway, she was essentially like a romantic interest in waiting, at the beginning. And then he decides, no, she's not a romantic interest. She's a warrior. Her role is going to be to join, to be the captain in Dunharrow first, then to join Theoden uh, and fight at his side and to die valiantly in battle. Right? Um, so that, and that, so that, that's her job, right? Her job is to be, is to be uh, a hero to kill the Witch King, right? She's going to be killing the Witch King and dying. In killing the Witch King, the standard like anti Balrog maneuver, essentially, you know, sacrifice your life, kill the big uh, bad guy uh, in defense of the life of the king who's dying anyway. But that's very Anglo-Saxon, right? So it's all good, uh, and everyone's lying dead on the battlefield, and uh, and then we have a lament, right? So again, very Anglo-Saxon, very, uh, um, you know, very into the. Uh, very into the whole thing. Um, Tony, I agree. He did really want to get the Elves of Lorien involved in the war. Again, you'll remember the earlier version where he had the Elves of Lorien coming down into Ithilien, right, and joining in a battle there in Ithilien against the the the, the uh, army from Minas Morgul. Um, so, yeah, he has them instead now coming down into the Wald, which is a little closer to home, right? Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, you know, Tony and Yana are, of course, both uh, thinking about, you know, Peter Jackson bringing them into Helm's Deep. Um, you know, you don't want to make any rash statements about what Tolkien would have thought of that. But I would say this. A lot of people responded to the elves of Lorien arriving at Helm's Deep in the movie like 
as if like, oh my goodness, like Tolkien would be rolling over in his grave. You know, Tolkien had this impulse, right? He wanted to bring an army of Lorien elves uh, into the. He never did it, right? You know, he ended up changing his mind about that. But but yeah, we can see. Uh, Tony, this is not just a fleeting idea, right? He's he really wants to bring them. Uh, he really wants to bring them in. Um, I think the main thing, the primary difference between his decision not to do it and Peter Jackson's decision to do it, is that Peter Jackson is way, way, way more willing than Tolkien to just kind of wave his hands at the practicalities of it. Right. Um, that's what Tolkien, I think, would have primarily hated about the the elves of Lothlorien showing up at Helm's Deep is like, how the heck did they get there? How could they possibly get there before the army of orcs arrived? Where were they? When did they set out? Right. I mean, how is this even possible? It's not. They're too far away. It's way down in the south of Rohan. So what do they cross the entire length of Rohan? They must have set out when? When must they have set out even right after the company left? I mean, come on. Um, so... The, the, that's the kind of thing that would have driven Tolkien crazy about the whole thing. Whereas, of course, as we know from Peter Jackson films, like people and or armies suddenly appearing, having like teleported themselves over hundreds of miles and come out of nowhere is that's like it's no, it's fine. Right. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that, that is the kind of thing that Peter Jackson is very willing to just kind of let to, uh, to happen. Um, but, um. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Brandon Melvin says, let me draw a diagram of elven militia movements next to my Nazgul tracker chart. Yeah, exactly. That's what Tolkien would be doing, right? Um, yeah, Josiah is thinking, and what about the baggage train? Exactly. How would they supply themselves as they crossed Rohan? They could just bring a whole lot of Lembus, I guess, right? But again, still, these are the things that would bother Tolkien and which obviously don't bother Peter Jackson in the slightest bit. And to me, I think that's the primary difference. Uh, between uh, uh, between them and why again I think that's why Tolkien, despite his desire to bring uh, to bring elves into play, you know the Lorien elves into play, why he would never even have thought of uh, doing that in Helm's Deep. Um, but um, anyway, okay, all right. But anyway, we were sacking Minas Morgul, and right, I see Arthur is concerned about. About uh, Gandalf behaving like Fanor, uh, uh, sacking Minas Morgul and then dashing off in pursuit uh, onto onto Daggerlad. Um, yeah, no, I don't think. I mean, victorious Gandalf is an interesting phrase, right? I mean, and I don't think Arthur that we need read this in a sort of a Fanorian sense, right? Of like Gandalf alone charging in front of the army, right, out distancing everybody on Shadowfax and uh, overextending himself, uh, you know, in towards the. Uh, yeah, no, I don't really, I don't really see that happening. But this is not the first time we have seen the movement of the army. This is the army of Gandalf, right? That is clear. It's not the army of Aragorn. Um, this is not, you know, say that the king, say that the king of, uh, the king of Gondor is come, right? This is not, this is not Aragorn's army. This is Gandalf's army. That is really clear. Gandalf has, uh, risen to his highest point now, um, in Tolkien's imagination in Tolkien's understanding of Gandalf. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, remember that the taunts that Gandalf sends towards Sauron, um, 
Stephen is saying maybe, you know, Gandalf was fairly cocky, right, in his confrontation with Sauron there. Maybe we can imagine that Gandalf uh, charging on uh, in front. Possibly, possibly. Um, But I, I still think that this just means it's Gandalf's army. So when he says Gandalf pursues onto Daggerlad, he means Gandalf and his army. Right. Anyway, okay. Let's keep going. All right, here we go. End of the book. Chapter 5. Frodo from a high tower sees the coming of the hosts of the West and the great assembly of secret army of Sauron. Remember this, what Frodo can see from his captivity in the high tower has been uh, uh, a feature from, you know, again, as he's trying to synchronize the time frames, right? Um, So chapter 5, we get the rescue of Frodo by Sam. Um, so notice, by the way, that he's not doing book five. He's trying to do book five consistently, right? That is, he's going to resume the story of Frodo and Sam and interlace it within book five. Um, we're not going to jump back again when it comes to Frodo and Sam, which of course is exactly what, what we end up doing in the published text. So we get a Frodo and Sam chapter here. Um, And by the way, this seems to be really well-timed in a sense, right? As the army marches north up towards Daggerlad is a good time to, you know, so they're marching north, Frodo and Sam, Frodo's being rescued, and then Frodo and Sam are moving towards Mount Doom. That's the narrative you want to focus on, right? Like, okay, so, like, they march north. Meanwhile, let's pay attention to the ring bearers, get them up to Mount Doom, and then once they're at Mount Doom, we can have the army have arrived at the Black Gate, right? So that seems good enough. Um, uh, so, okay, this army, maybe, goes out, As he and Sam pass into Gorgor, all is still and empty, and the noise of the war is far away. So the effect of the distraction, right, the effect of the assault of Gandalf and his personal army uh, at the Black Gate seems to be even more dramatic than it uh, it is in the published text, right? I mean, so they got... Gorgoroth is a they're like tumbleweeds rolling across the plains of Gorgoroth, right? Because everybody is gone. Um, Gandalf is ambushed in Kirithungal and comes to the edge of defeat. Why is Gandalf in Kirithungal? This is one of the most puzzling things in this entire outline to me. I don't understand what's happening here. Um, Gandalf. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I'm almost tempted to wonder if is he making a mistake here? Remember that Kirathungal was originally the name of the past. You know, the Black Gate, right? The main entrance into, you know, like the front door of Mordor. Um, is he accidentally reverting to that? I mean, is it at the Black Gate, maybe, that Gandalf is ambushed and coming close to defeat? Which then we shift from that to, so we end chapter five with Gandalf ambushed and coming close to defeat, and then we get the destruction of the ring at the beginning of the next chapter. Timing-wise, it would work if this ambushing and near-defeating is happening up by the Black Gate. Right, um, but I mean, he's shifted Kirithungal to mean that. I mean, and he 
of course, knows full well what Carathungol means. I mean, it's the it's the it's the it's the spider's cleft, right? I mean, it's I don't, it's, it's hard for me to really convince my I want to convince myself that he's thinking of, you know, the Moranin here, um, and just calling it Carathungol because he's reverting to that act kind of accidentally, um, but. Uh, Um, yeah, James Leback was thinking the same thing. I totally want to believe that that's what's happening there because that would make everything make sense. But I don't think that that can be that. Um, great question. Yana's wondering, are we to assume Gandalf here means Gandalf and his army? (sighs) That seems... Gandalf pursues... Victorious Gandalf pursues onto Daggerlad... That, I think, is certainly the army, right? Um, no, and they've gone on to Daggerlad, so how could G- victorious Gandalf now be... It's got to be the Northern Pass that he's thinking. It's got to be. He can't have been like, all right, y'all go up to Daggerlad. I'm going to go up, you know, Carathungal. And anyway, who would ambush him, right? Ungoliant slash Shelob is out of commission, right? So... That's not, and no, I just, I don't get it. Don't get it. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's got to be. I think it's got to be the passage from Daggerlad. Whether that means that this outline is really early or what, but it, it has to be. Because victorious Gandalf and his army were sent to Daggerlad in chapter four. Uh, so there's no way that either that they're going to be. Now, it's got to be. It's got to be. Um, but even that, remember, is this is a notice that. So let's assume that by Carathungal he means the pass through the Black Gate. Right? He's using he's using this in the older sense of Carathungal. Um even this is a difference, right? This is an innovation. So here we still see him shifting the shifting the story down the spectrum from triumphant victory to underdog victory, right? Um because the original story of the fall of Barad-dûr had them coming to the gate, and then right as they came to the gate, ready to fight, the ring is destroyed, the tower falls, and they just swarm victoriously into Gorgoroth. Right? There was no. There was never. There was never a battle that they weren't winning the whole time. Right. So the idea of the ambush. And nearing the edge of defeat, I think now points to the fact that the battle there is going to be a heavily lopsided battle in favor of Sauron, um, and there, and so the, that the destruction of the Ring is going to come as a um, is going to come as a as an upset, you know, and, and is is itself going to be a U catastrophe for Gandalf and the army, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, James, I do see that this outline in the other section, you know, b- belongs to 1944, but he's already done Shelob's Lair in 1944. But whatever, I, whether it's a mistake or or whether the date of this outline is earlier, I don't know. But I'm pretty convinced between what it says in Chapter 4 and, as you're pointing out, uh, uh, Josiah, what it says in Chapter 6, um, allies enter Mordor, which clearly happens through the gate in the north. Um uh, every time, right? Um, there's never any version of the story where they go up over the mountain through the real Kirathungal behind Minas Morgul. That uh, that never happens. So I think it's I think it's pretty clear that they're that that's where they are, and so that must be what he's referring to there. Anyway, okay, so chapter six. So we're going to bring them to the battle. They're gonna they're gonna be near to defeat in the battle. This is all happening. So in one chapter, in one chapter, we're going to rescue Frodo. Uh, cross Gorgoroth and then have the battle uh, at the Black Gate and presumably the discussion with the mess. No, the messenger, the parley happens earlier. Yeah, the parley happens in chapter four. Okay, fine. Uh, anyway, there's still a lot to happen in chapter five. Okay, so destruction of the ring, fall of Baradur, allies enter Mordor, rescue of Frodo by eagle. Okay. Return to chapter 7, then return to Gondor, crowning of Aragorn, funeral of Theoden and Eowyn, hobbits depart north, struck out past Lorien and something. Uh, So he was going to, they were going to pass Lorien and something else. Fall of Sauron, Goadriel's land ruined. Hmm. Yeah, Kevin and Arthur are both wondering about this. How does what's in what sense is the fall of Sauron happening in chapter seven? Could that be a mistake too? Could he have meant Saruman? Maybe. I mean, it's in the list of going home things, right? And clearing up things with Saruman had always been part of the plan. If you remember way back to the very first outline he ever wrote of the end of the book stuff, when he was thinking about how to wrap things up and tie up loose ends uh, with the return journey home, the confrontation of the final confrontation of Gandalf and Saruman uh, featured very heavily in that very, very first initial concept. And sequentially, it would make sense, right? Funeral of Theodore when hobbits depart north, Saruman, Lorien. Ah, Saruman's out of the way there, too. No idea. No idea. Um, <laughs> it just, I was wondering, did we almost have the scouring of Lorien, uh, of, of Lothalorien? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I have no idea what the fall of Sauron means there. Let me forget about the Saruman idea because, you know, there's only so much we can, you know... It's only so useful to say, well, I can come up with an explanation if it said something totally different than it actually says, right? You can play that game, but uh, that's not really where you want to hang your hat at the end of the day. Uh... Mm. 
Kevin, I agree, given the really bad quality of Tolkien's handwriting, especially when he's scratching out ideas like this, the uh, possibility that he, you know, that what he wrote was like some kind of shorthand for Saruman and, and looks like Sauron, and that's what how Christopher Tolkien interpreted Like, the possibility of that kind of a mistake is very significant, right? There's a very non-zero chance that that kind of a mistake happened. Um, but I wonder, I mean, let's just imagine for a second, imagine for a second that he did mean Sauron. How? I mean, it would be kind of interesting. Yeah, Tony, is it perhaps a, a final confrontation between Sauron and Gandalf? That would be really interesting. Um, uh, um, I mean, it is one of the sort of fascinating elements of the published text that Sauron, the villain, you know, the primary antagonist of the whole story, essentially dies off stage, right? Um, I mean, we kind of see it, you know, with the shape that rises up and gets blown away. Um, But we don't get a final confrontation. We don't, like, you know, we don't... um, we we don't see the body, right? We don't. Uh, it's uh, and again, I'm not complaining about that. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know, criticizing the published text and saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I can imagine Tolkien deciding that he wanted a more personal kind of confrontation because Sauron doesn't die. the The destruction of the ring doesn't kill him; it just weakens him. Um, so I can imagine a scenario in which. <clears throat> a weakened, ring-deprived Sauron is confronted by Gandalf, by Gandalf and Galadriel. Um, I can imagine this. But what I have the hardest time with is the sequence. I mean, they were right there in Gorgoroth, Right? How does this come after the hobbits depart for the north and before Galadriel's land, they find Galadriel's land ruined, right? So Lothlorien is is wrecked. I got nothing. Has he gone running back to Mirkwood? Does weakened Sauron after the destruction of the ring run back to Dol Guldur, and they have to roust him out there? I'm guessing. Wildly guessing. Um, Because this is just, it's really tantalizing. And I have no idea. I'm trying to come up with any kind of plausible scenario here. Yeah. Marilyn is wondering if Gandalf could hang around in the south to confront Sauron, right? So that we're sort of shifting the narrative to the... the Yeah. Uh, Maybe. I I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Especially since the rest of everything else works sequentially, right? Return to Gondor, crowning of Aragorn, funeral of Theoden and Eowyn, hobbits depart, Galadriel's land ruined. All that works together in one clear unified sequence. 
Um, uh, no, Stephen, by Goadriel's land ruined, I believe that means the orcs came down and wrecked it. I, I think it's it's been destroyed in the war. Um, I don't think this is a consequence of the destruction of the ring. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, Tony, tying up the whole necromancer thing from The Hobbit was uh, what I was thinking of, too. But it, it seems to me a, a kind of a desperate expedient. Anyway, not sure. I'm going to have to punt on the fall of Sauron uh, there. Chapter 8, Rivendell. Chapter 9, Shire. Chapter 10, Epilogue, Sam's Book. Uh, so the idea that we're, he's going to end the story with Sam reading out of the red book to his children and grandchildren has been an idea from the beginning, right? And that's, he's going to tie up, uh, that's going to be the tying up of loose ends, right? Showing the content, the con, the, con, the continuation continuity. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't even remember. Anyway, showing how the story goes on is what I'm saying, right? Uh, and how the story is carried on and conveyed to the future generations through the Red Book was the was the way that he wanted to end it. Uh, and he was going to use that as an opportunity to tie up arbitrary loose ends that he might not have a chance to tie up in the preceding chapters, right? By having some of the, the children and grandchildren ask questions which Sam can answer, right? So that was... Uh, going to be the plan at the end. What's going to happen in the Shire? Is there going to be a scouring of the Shire or something? Remember, there were hints way back in the Council of Elrond, there were already hints that something was going to go down in the Shire, right? That Mary was originally supposed to go back to be at the center of, um, when originally they were going to send him back. And probably Odo, right, as a final desperate attempt to get rid of Odo. Um, but, uh, so we've are, we are, we had some hints and glimmers that there was going to be something uh, that had been happening in the Shire. They weren't going to come back and find the Shire, you know, business as, as as usual. But we didn't get any details about that, and we certainly don't get anything uh, uh, here. Yeah. So, Stephen, exactly. By having the conversation with Sam's uh, offspring, he can include an FAQ uh, there in the last chapter. Exactly. Exactly. Um Emily, I also find it interesting that he's cramming so much into the early chapters and then he gives an entire chapter to Rivendell. That does seem to me strange as well, Emily, but the one thing that I would add to that is it's so clear that he doesn't have a clear plan about these, right? This is just... He knows they have to go to Rivendell, and stuff will probably stuff or conversations. I think he doesn't have any idea, right? You know, he's 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 work he's working out the story for these early chapters in some detail. Um, th- this is those are clearly placeholders, right? Rivendell, Shire, uh, those are clearly placeholders. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Let's keep going. We're only on the first outline. I'm not making much progress here today. Okay. Now he goes back, and we do the outline again. Still in chapter form, right? Um, But it's really interesting how we see him go back and, uh, um, you know, fill in the details much more uh, now in his next crack through this. Okay, now, chapter one. Gandalf and Pippin reach Minas Tirith. They see Denethor. 
Reasons for the beacons. A. News from scouts in Athelion. B. News reached Denethor on February 5th that fleets of Southrons had set sail. Gondor musters its forces. Pippin sees full moon rising and wonders where Frodo is. No sign of Rohan. Okay. Um, several things to notice here. First, I love the you know the added details, right? And look at the details that are being added. Um, we have the prominence of their meeting with Denethor, right? That gets mentioned in the outline now. That's you know clearly in his mind, uh, growing into a more central part of what happens. This is not just the Gandalf show in Minas Tirith, right? We've got Denethor involved here. Um, he was involved before, but this uh, the his mentioning that uh, strikes me as 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 significant here. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's really mean-spirited. Maybe Elrond was going to exposit for a whole chapter. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Don't be so mean to poor Elrond. Um, Stephen, I mean, you know, he... Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, when you've been through everything that Elrond has, you can have 50 pages of exposition. You know, like, come on. Don't grudge the guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, Yana, I also love the moon sighting thing here, right? Um, on the one hand, of course, this is a consequence of Tolkien's charts and figuring out the chronology and stuff, you know, the, making the direct link with the moon through the moon to Frodo's chronology. Um, but at the same time, Yana, this is also one of these sort of visual glimpses, right? This, this sort of visual scene of... Pippin standing on the ramparts of Minas Tirith and watching the full moon rise, looking out to the east as the moon rises and wondering where in that direction Frodo is, right? That's uh, um, that kind of setting, right? That kind of scenery uh, is clearly one of the things that he, you know, of all of the details to mention in chapter one, to mention Pippin seeing the full moon rising and wondering where Frodo is, is kind of an interesting one. And, and it's, to me, it's all about those two things, right? It's all about the, um, the, 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 the linking of the chronology and it's about the, you know, the striking visuals of that scene. Um, the second thing I would point out about this first, this version of this new version of chapter one here, news reached Denethor on February 5th that fleets of Southrons had set sail. See the significance of that? See what Denethor does not seem to be doing yet? And that would be looking into the Palantir. He needs to receive messages from folks to find out what the Southrons are doing. Um, I, so I think it's that seems to me fairly positive evidence that uh, we don't... He's not looking in the Palantir yet, right? That concept has not seemed to enter in. We know that he's not, you know, setting himself on fire yet. That's, that's, uh, that's down the road. Uh, Denethor was going to die somehow in from the very earliest versions um you know from the old model the old phase 1 model of of the battle of Minas Tirith he Denethor was going to die just so that we could have a succession right and Aragorn could be chosen instead of Boromir and which um uh upset poor Boromir for some sort of r- r- relatively i guess understandable reasons um but um the in the recent ones he was surviving Right. I mean, there was no indication of what happened to of what happened to Denethor. Um, so, OK, 
but not only is he not doing that, he's also not looking into the Palantir. And that's one of the things that I've been looking for. Like, when does the Palantir story come in? Uh, and it's always hard drawing conclusions from absence, especially in these outlines and things, which is why I was really interested in that particular, because that's a piece of positive evidence, right? Not just negative evidence. All right, chapter two. Theoden comes to Dunharrow. Pukelmen. Beacons and messengers. Tidings of orc invasions of Wold. Theoden rides out on night of February 8th. Aemir and Eowyn ride with him. Gambling is left in command in Westfold. The old Seneschal of Edoras in Eastfold. Aragorn and Aemir ride north to beat off orcs. They come back. Change to Aemir rides north to beat off orcs. He comes back and rejoins main body, reporting that Ents and Lorien elves have destroyed the northern diversion. They all ride to Minas Tirith. Where is Aragorn? He went with his rangers over the mountains. (coughs) By the way, I don't know what where is Aragorn means. That is, I don't know if if this is Tolkien asking himself the question. Oh, wait, hang on. And then answering it, right? We've seen him do that before. Or whether by saying where is Aragorn... He means the question of Aragorn's, like the mystery of Aragorn's whereabouts are going to be discussed in chapter two. Um, So I don't know if this means, I guess, so is it Tolkien who doesn't know or is it Theoden who doesn't know where Aragorn is? I'm not really sure. Um, But um, anyway, the thing, though, that is interesting is that we see the shape of chapter two, massive though it is, um, the shape of chapter two is the same as the last chapter two, with the whole going up and fighting against the northern host and having the ants and elves come in to help them. But the difference, we're separating Aragorn out. Now just Aemir is doing that. And notice he changes that mid-flow. He wrote, Aragorn and Aemir ride north to beat off orcs, just like before. Then he crosses it out and says, no, 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 Aemir rides north. He's going to send Aragorn south with the rangers, right, over the mountains. So now he is reinstating the... And I, so to me, this suggests it was not there. Remember, we were asking the question, like, is that whole going to go over the pass over the mountains and, and try to take the enemy by surprise to steal a march on them? Had that idea dropped entirely from the previous outline? I'm ready to get to just tentatively at least say yes i think so um given the fact that he was following the other outline word for word right aragorn and aemir ride north to beat off orcs he's following the old outline word for word then he makes a change in order to send aragorn south it was going to be one of the two he had neither one of them going right now he's going to send aragorn on south and he's going to send him south with the rangers not with a contingent of the rohirrim which is was originally aemir uh, and the Rohirrim, and now it's going to be, um, it's going to be uh, uh, with the Rangers instead. Um, and uh, yeah, Kevin, I think we still have Aemir, or sorry, Eowyn riding openly, not in disguise. No reason, no reason to suspect she's in disguise yet. Um, yeah. Okay, but notice again that he's still going over the mountains, not through them. So notice how both elements are still there, are already there, right? Aragorn and the rangers are going south in order to steal a march and 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 approach the city from a from a, from a different direction. That's there. 
the mountain is now a haunted mountain with a door nobody's ever entered and secret spooky things are behind it and maybe an artifact of some kind. Who knows, right? That's there, too. So we've got the secret spooky underground passage. We've got Aragorn and the Rangers going south, but we have not combined them at all yet, right? There's no evidence that anything is going to come of the door, the secret door of Dunharrow uh, in this version of the story at all. Okay, Great Darkness. Faramir returns. Host of Morgul crosses river. Southron fleets assail the south of Gondor. Gondor defeated and besieged. Gandalf in White Tower does not yet reveal his power or something or other, possibly his name. So Gandalf is concealing himself. He doesn't want to do the shiny white light thing because that would show everybody that he's there and who he is. And he wants to hide that still. We saw that before. Um, Gandalf's reluctance to reveal himself because, like, the time is not right or whatever. There's a reason he doesn't. I don't know the reason why he doesn't want to do this. And remember, Gandalf is not revealed until remember he looks into the Palantir and then throws it down and brains somebody with it. Right? That was that was the moment with Gandalf and the Palantir before. And until that point, Gandalf is going to remain hidden. Um, I think the uh, we're moving more and more towards the underdog side of the spectrum here, Gondor defeated. Gondor was never defeated before, right? They 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 get driven back from Osgiliath and stuff, but they they were they've been they, they've been the favorites in this contest all the way through, right? Uh defeated and besieged sounds to me a little bit more serious. Final assault on Minas Tirith, Nazgul appear Pelennor Wall is taken. Sudden charge of Rohan breaks siege. Theoden and Eowyn destroy Nazgul, and Theoden falls. Aragorn arrives, having crossed the mountains with his rangers. He drove off the south runs. Aragorn enters Minas Tirith and meets Denethor and Faramir. Uh, by the way, I see no reason here to believe that Eowyn survives. Sorry, Stephen, I don't think she's going to make it here. Um, no, it's not mentioned that she dies here, but this has been her role, like, ever since she's come to Gondor. She's There's a, so far a 100% Aemir fa- or Eowyn fatality rate. Uh, I, I, she has never survived. Um, maybe she's surviving here, Uh and I'm forgetting something, but I, I, the fact that, that there I would not draw a conclusion from absence there. Um, okay. But again, so notice Aragorn drives off the south runs with his rangers and presumably help from the locals. Uh, so he comes in and he defeats the southern army by, you know, doing his mountain, you know, doing his Hannibal impression and going over the mountains. Um, but again, it's it's a purely strategic victory. It is not a prophetic uh, fulfillment of oath, right, or anything like that. No, nothing of that kind. Just a uh, a bit of particularly brilliant and bold maneuvering, right, on his part. Okay, chapter four: Gandalf and Aragorn and Aemir and Faramir defeat Mordor. Say so, yeah, it's not just Gandalf by himself anymore, right? Aragorn, Amir, and Faramir get to help. Cross into Ithilien. Ents arrive, and elves out of north. So we got the Ents and the Elves still coming in into Ithilien. Faramir invests Morgul, and main force comes to Morannon. Parley. Okay. 
I think that this means Faramir invests Morgul. I believe means that Faramir is left in the... Uh, Faramir doesn't go to the Black Gate. Um, he is left presumably in charge of the force of the army that is investing Minas Morgul. That means it's besieging it, right? So he's going to... He's going to... They, they, they're here not destroying... They haven't sacked Minas Morgul. But they're going to make sure that this, uh, uh, that, that nobody can come out and attack them in their rear, right? So they're going to they're gonna hold, anybody who's still in Minas Morgul is going to stay there, right? That's going to be Faramir's job. Um, no, no, Tomas, invest, I'm sure, is correct. That's, that's the correct word. Uh, to invest, it means to besiege them. It means, to, so Minas Morgul's in a valley, Right. If you put your army across the mouth of the valley so they can't get out, you have invested uh, uh, the 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 enemy city there, um, which means they can't get out. And Amir and Faramir is going to be left in charge of that, leaving Aragorn and and uh, Amir with Gandalf uh, to go up uh, into the north. But here's my question: um, Defeat Mordor. Gandalf and Aragorn and Amir and Faramir defeat Mordor. What does that mean? By the way, notice that Denethor survived. Aragorn gets to come in and meet Denethor and Faramir. Hey guys, what's up? Right, returning king. Is that awkward? How awkward is that? We don't know how awkward that is, right? I mean, that's a really interesting sentence, and we don't know what story lies behind it exactly, you know. Is that tense? Is that not tense? Right? Is he is he in disguise? Is he not revealed? Do they know who he is? I don't know. Um, Denethor presumably stays home, right? Uh, I guess in Minas Tirith, and Faramir, Amir, Aragorn, and Gandalf go out, and then Faramir stays in Ithilien, so none of the lords of Gondor go north. With the army? That's fine. Gandalf's army anyway. Um, what are the Anson Elves doing? Joining in for the battle. Gotta be. So we want Ents and Elves along with the army from Minas Tirith at the battle, at the Black Gate. Yeah. No, that's gotta be. That's gotta be why the Elves and Ents are showing up here. They've already done their military intervention, right, with the army in the north of the wold that um, Amir fought off with their help. So this is just, they're showing up to be representatives. Remember, all the free peoples are going to be represented. Well, the Ents were included in that originally, as well as the elves of Lothlorien. So we had a much more representative council here at the original parley uh, at the Moranon. I'm still not sure about the defeat of Mordor there in chapter 3. So if chapter, in chapter 4. So chapter 3 is the final assault on Minas Tirith, and then the sudden charge of the Rohirrim, right? So that's what we would think of as the Battle of Pelennor. If Aragorn's arriving, right? Um, it's uh, the catastrophe level of his arrival is not specified, but anyway, he's going to arrive, so instead of Southrons, we get Aragorn, plus Rangers. Uh... But then in the next chapter, after the army sets out, they're going to defeat Mordor. But before they cross into Ithilien, I don't... This has to be the retaking of Osgiliath, 
That's got to be what he's referring to. So they're going to fight a battle at Osgiliath to retake the crossings of Anduin. And that is the defeat of Mordor being referred to, because then they can cross into Athelion and invest Morgul. It's got to be. Defeat Mordor as opposed to defeat the Southrons? Does this suggest that the assault on Minas Tirith is once more being conceived as primarily Southrons? With some little help from the Nazgul, right? Such that the army from Minas Morgul is still at Osgiliath and has to be defeated before they can then cross into Athelion and then invest Minas Morgul because they've already overthrown them. I think that's got to be. I think that's got to be what he means there. Um, Yeah. Still a little puzzling, but okay. All right. Last version. This is the last version, right? Yeah, okay. Last last version before he stops. Aragorn is not there. He has fallen into converse with the messengers of Gondor, and getting guides from the men of Harrowdale had passed into the mountains with his rangers. So it's, it's at Harrowdale that Aragorn is not, right? At the mustering of Rohan. Um, so the idea now of the passage over the mountains with the rangers is now Aragorn's initiative, right? Not the result of a sort of council of war with Theoden. Great darkness over land, Faramir comes, host of Morgul crosses great river at Osgiliath and assails Gondor. At the same time, Southron fleets come up Great River and send a host into Lebenin, while another host from Moranon crosses river to north on a boat bridge and links with the Morgul host. Gondor is defeated in night battle. Gandalf in White Tower does not yet reveal himself. Gandalf looks in Palantir, question mark? Uh, it's in the margin, right? So does the Palantir thing happen now so that Gandalf is free to reveal himself in the battle? Um, but my question is, if, if, if Gandalf looks in the Palantir now, whom is he going to brain with the Palantir after he looks it in? That seems to me a plot flaw. Anyway, black hosts gather about the wall of Pelennor. Morning of ten, Nazgûl are seen. Men fly. At sunrise on ten, there's a sound of horns, charge of Rohan, rout of the enemy. Rout of the enemy. Right? Love that. Amir wounded. Ah, okay. Theoden is slain by Nazgul, but he is unhorsed, and enemy is routed. Gandalf leads charge in white. Theoden is laid in state in Tomb of Kings, struck out, great grief of Mary, meeting of Mary and Pippin. Okay, we're not, we're not having that. Okay. Added. News comes that fleet is coming up river. News come uh, uh, change to. News comes from south that a great king has descended out of the mountains where he had been entombed and set such a flame into men that the mountaineers, where the purer blood of Gondor lingered, and the folk of Lebenin have utterly routed the Southrons and burned, changed to taken, their ships. The fleet sailing up river is an ally. Aragorn reaches Osgiliath by ship like a great king of old. Frodo's vision. Meeting of Gandalf and Aragorn and Faramir at Osgiliath 
evening of ten. Okay. Yet another reference to the uh, uh, to the death of Theoden without any reference to the death of Eowyn. Is it possible that he's reconsidering that, that he's removing the element of the death of Eowyn from the battle? Possibly, right? Uh, I mean, that's it's two outlines in a row that he's done that. Still only negative evidence. That's been her job. I mean, she's not given any other job, right? And she, and she was specifically coming along. So uh, I'm still assuming she's dying there. Uh, uh, we also don't get the death of the... Uh, the Lord of the Nazgul here, but I, I, again, I don't think that that means that it isn't happening. So, I'm still assuming that Eowyn is killing the Nazgul and dying here, even though he doesn't say so. Um, but notice now how the story of Aragorn coming into the south is growing, right? Um, and this is really fascinating. So, He's not going to come down. He's not going to have enough rangers with him to, to defeat the Southrons and then come up, right? Clearly, as he thinks about this, Tolkien is saying, Aragorn needs help, right? So his coming down across the mountains into the south is not just going to be a smaller army stealing a march and taking them by surprise and defeating them. Um his role is going to be to rally and inspire the men of South Gondor uh, to this. And so in that concept, right, um, the concept of Aragorn coming into the South and inspiring people, uh, setting a flame into men, right, um, which seems like an Aragorn kind of thing, right? You know, him showing some real kingly leadership here. Um, And so he starts to build up the story of the mountain. They're going to be mountaineers, right? Because they're going to be, like, in the sense that they're going to be, these are going to be the men who live in the mountains. Why? Because these are the people that he's going to descend among as he crosses over the pass and he comes to the mountain people. And he's like, hey, um, can I set a fire in you and we can go uh, attack the Southrons? But he creates this one mythic touch, right? The news from the South is going to be that a great king has descended out of the mountains where he had been entombed, right? Because he's coming out of nowhere. Nobody's crossed this path in a long time. Remember when, originally when Eomir volunteered to take a, an army of men over the pass to try to to assist Gondor from the south, Theoden then lamented him like he was already dead, right? I mean, everybody was convinced that this was a really at least a very risky thing, if not an, like a suicidal thing to try to do. So this is not, this, this pass over the mountains is meant to be a really dangerous, um, a really dangerous, uh, uh, pass to cross, which is not a normal route, right? For, for people to take. Um, and so therefore his arrival and the mountaineers descending down to attack the Southrons has this, like, mythic element to it now, right? And so it must be a dead king uh, who has descended now. So, you know, is this uh, is this where the, the rumors of the king of the dead come from, Evan? Yeah, in a sense, absolutely. This is the beginning of that, right? And we see this concept that the king of the dead has come... Uh, is never going to go away, right? 
But notice the force. The force of it is completely different here. There aren't any dead, right? Um, they say in the published text, they say the king of the dead is upon us because there's an army of dead people, right, being led by a dude who looks like the king of the dead. So it all really makes a lot of sense when you have an army of the dead on the march, you know, the shadow army. We don't have a shadow army. We've got an army of real people, right? What do we see here? What is the whole this whole business though about the king of the dead? You know, this of the uh, uh, why is it a great king descending out of the mountains where he had been entombed? This is clearly a reference to the return of the king, right? There is a sense, of course, in which this is true. This is not. There's not any dead king which is literally risen from his grave to return. Not literally, but figuratively, yes. The 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 Dunedine king has returned as from the dead, right? Um, and because this is how I take that reference to um, where the pure blood of Gondor lingered, right? So it is almost as if the, the Numenorean kings were entombed uh, in among the mountaineers here because among those mountaineers, the purest Numenorean blood remains, Right, so when they descend, led by, you know, a king as from old, right? It is this throwback. There is this mythic element to it. No, he's not literally risen from the dead. But yes, Stephen, exactly. It's almost like a fire is springing from the ashes here. That's kind of exactly what it's like, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. And Kevin, yeah, that's great. Kevin Lucas says, instead of Denethor setting a fire in anybody's flesh, we have Aragorn setting a fire in men's hearts. Yes, much more wholesome that way, isn't it? Um, and it is, Kevin, when you think about that, right, when we get this this uh, imagery of Aragorn setting a flame into men, right, Um it does make what Denethor is going to try to do with Faramir and his funeral pile into a much more sort of pointed and hideous mockery of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Stephen, thinking also again about the line, right, from the ashes of fire shall spring. Um, again, with Denethor, it's going the other way, right? We're going to set things on fire so that everything falls into ashes. Which is, of course, the normal way, uh, but uh, but different, opposite to how Aragorn is doing things. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Something else I wanted to say. Oh, yes, of course, and now we get the explicitly, the arrival of Aragorn in the ships of the Southrons, becomes we get this you catastrophic touch right now he's seeing so the 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 drama of the battle is definitely increasing uh as we uh uh as he moves through but this is the end right after this so this is the this is that that last touch that you know uh the fleet sailing up the river is an ally right that sort of turnabout that surprise that uh um uh, that you catastrophic touch is sort of the last edition, right? And the first glimmerings of the whole King of the Dead thing. 
Um, yeah, Kevin, I also love it how he first he burns the ships, which is what they did originally, right? And then he's like, oh, no, wait, 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 we need the ships, right? Keep the ships. Don't burn them yet. Um, yeah, it's really, again, again, a wonderful um, moment where we can see him uh, thinking on his feet, right? Um, I mean, in fact, you can see it's like at that moment, right? That moment when he crosses out burned and writes taken above it is the moment, right? When the whole fleet with black sails uh, moment appears, right? In the middle of drafting those sentences there in this outline. Yeah. Okay. Now we stop. World War II comes to an end, right? And he then finally returns to the story in 1946. Let's do one more trip through the outline, but we'll look at the outline in 1946. So when he comes back to it two years later, here's what the story looks like. It is still, of course, five books long. So, book five, chapter 44 of the overall story, right, of The Lord of the Rings, not chapter 44 of book five. That would be one way to make uh, chapter 45 be enough to end it. Gandalf and Pippin ride to Minas Tirith and see Denethor. Pippin on walls, coming in... He may or may not be watching the, the uh, full moon. Coming in of last allies, great darkness begins that night. Okay, all right. 45. King and Aragorn... It's a lovely conjunction. King and Aragorn, with Mary Legolas Gimli, ride to the Hornburg. Overtaken by the son of El, the son of Elrond. Huh, Elrond's got one son. Overtaken by the I totally read over that when I was reading it before. I didn't even notice uh, when I was reviewing it before that it, that was singular. Uh, my brain didn't even register it. Overtaken by the son of Elrond and thirty rangers seeking Aragorn probably because of messages sent by Galadriel to Elrond. King rides to Dunharrow by mountain roads. Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, and rangers go by open road. Aragorn reveals he has looked in Palantir and seeks the paths of the dead. King arrives at Dunharrow dusk two days later and finds Aragorn has gone on paths of the dead. Aaron riders of Gondor come. Muster of Rohan takes place in Harrowdale by Gandalf's orders, not Edoras, and King sets out next morning for Edoras. All of a sudden now, all of those, uh, all of those bits, right, have come together now. The, the dark mystery of Dunharrow and Aragorn's trip to the south uh, in what really is his first kingly act. Remember, we saw that kingliness coming in with the setting of flame in men's hearts and everything, and the the like the 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 fire springing from the ashes of 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 Numenor. There, um, now this is the these things come together, and the paths of the dead have emerged. So somewhere in those two years, the paths of the dead have now come in. Um, notice also that the rangers who had been sent down because all it just as one of the gathering of everybody right one example of the gathering of everybody the rangers came and the dunlendings came and the bjornings came um now it's just the dunedain so the dunedain are given um 
Aragorn. So they're not just a list. They've come down to seek him personally. And they not only come down in this more sort of purposefully driven, um, you know, they, they, they come down to seek Aragorn. They come down to seek him with a specific purpose. They bring prophecy with them, right? Um, so in, in one sense, this concept of the gathering of all the good guys for like a second battle of the last alliance, which sounds kind of funny when you think about it, um, <laughs> now makes Elrond and, and, uh, and uh, Gilgo had the penultimate alliance, actually. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we've he seems to have abandoned that idea. Now it's just the rangers sent on this particular mission, um, sent in by Goadriel through, you know, sort of foresight. And, uh, um, and, uh, um, and he, uh, yeah, sorry, totally lost my train of thought. Right, so instead we just, it's now it's, we're, our only goal is to uh, to bring the the rangers in. The fact that the sons of Elrond accompany him, uh, James tells me the book actually has sons, which is why I didn't notice that before. Okay, that that explains it, James. Uh, I would have thought I would have noticed that. Easy mistake to make. Anyway, um, the fact that the sons of Elrond are accompanying the rangers seems to, again that just gives it that particular stamp, right? These are these are messengers from the north, right? They are coming down for a particular reason, not just because everybody is flocking to the, to the, uh, uh, to the side of the good guys here. Okay. Chapter 46. Pippin on walls. (laughs) Pippin spends a lot of time on the walls here. Several days later, when host of Morgul is victorious, um, News comes through of flanking attacks on Lorien and by Harad in south. A great army has crossed into Wold of Rohan. They fear Rohirrim will not come. Dark grows, but even so, the Nazgul cause a greater darkness. Gandalf shines in the field. Notice Gandalf not holding himself back anymore, right? He doesn't have the Palantir, so the question of Gandalf being revealed to the enemy? Not relevant. Oh no, by the way, I totally skipped over that. Yeah. Aragorn has the Palantir, and he uh, looks into the Palantir, right? So he's revealed himself to Sauron. Uh, Again, let's know. Let's take the Palantir away from Gandalf, right? It's not safe in his hands. He's just going to throw it at people. So let's take it away from Gandalf, and let's give it to Aragorn. Let's have Aragorn revealing himself to Sauron. Gandalf revealed himself to Sauron. Now we're going to have Aragorn reveal himself to Sauron. Uh, and but that's going to be purposeful, right? And it's going to accelerate the whole thing. Again, that's a it's a significant shift, and it just happens as soon as we come back to it in 1946. That's there. The paths of the dead are there. The purpose of the of the riders from the north. Everything now falls into place uh, in that early section. Really interesting. Anyway, okay, um, but we still have news coming in. We're 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 Gondor focused here. This is from the Gondorian point of view. Um, not from the uh, uh, Rohiric point of view. Uh, okay, Gandalf shines in the field. That's where I left off. Pippin sees the light of him as he and Faramir rally men. That is, as Gandalf and Faramir rally the men, presumably not Pippin, who is still on the walls. Though the idea of Pippin and Faramir together in the field rallying the men is kind of awesome. I don't think that's what he meant. I think it's Gandalf shining 
in the field. But at last the enemy are at the gates, and the Nazgul fly over the city. Then just as gate is giving way, they hear the horns of Rohan. So we now have the clear underdog statement and the last second uh, arrival. Okay, go back to Mary. Uh, remember that one impulse of having Mary's perspective and showing things from Mary's point of view as he entered Harrowdale, right? Which, of course, stays into the uh, into the published text. Um, but he hadn't pursued that, right? The idea of showing the whole ride of the Rohirrim from Mary's point of view um, was not the initial plan, right? But so it's one of the things that I think that we can see here, not just... Um, this is not just, it's not, not just about the development of the story, it's also about sort of the realization of how the story will go, right? Um, how, the angle from which he can tell the story, which is really interesting and, and a really fascinating and cool change. Charge of Rohan, orcs and black riders driven from gate, fall of Theoden wounded, but he is saved by a warrior of his household who falls on his body. Mary sits by them, Sortie saves King, who is gravely wounded. Warrior found to be Eowyn. The hosts of Morgul reform and drive them back to the gate. At that moment, a wind rises, dark is rolled back. Black ships seen, despair, standard of Aragorn and Elendil, Eomir's wrath. Morgul taken between two forces and defeated, Eomir and Aragorn meet. Um, again... All of a sudden, now all of the elements of the Battle of Pelennor Field are there. The U catastrophic arrival on the ships that look like the ships of the, that are in fact the ships of the Southrons, right? Um, which are only revealed now. The detail of the standard, right, which shows that it's Aragorn um, and Elendil, standard of Aragorn, and also Elendil, right? Um, uh, all of that stuff is uh, uh, is 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 now revealed clearly. Um, Eowyn now seems to be in disguise. Um, that's not a given for, to me from this outline. Warrior found to be Eowyn. Um, I mean, she could... Does this mean... Does that prove that Theoden didn't realize she was there? Not necessarily, but it seems to me very possible now. Um, I, there was no evidence that that was true before. The only positive evidence we had was of the scene which described her coming to him and saying, okay, up the shield, maidens, let's go with you. Um, and him apparently accepting that. So there is at least now the sort of the possibility uh, of this... Uh, uh, of Amir's or sorry, Awen. Why do I keep crossing their names tonight? Um, yeah. So anyway, it, is she in disguise? That now seems not certain, but possible. Um, Okay, Morgul taken between two forces and, and defeated. Notice that it is, again, very clearly and explicitly the army from Minas Morgul that is being fought here on the field. Okay, good. Gandalf and Denethor learn of the defeat of the flank attacks by Shadowhost and by Ents. They cross Anduin. They, not the Ents. Uh, Gandalf and Denethor, presumably, are the they in question, not the Ents. Oh, that would be cool. Shadowhost and the Ents. The army of the dead and the Ents come together to cross the Anduin victorious. That would be quite a sight, right? But I assume it's not that they... Gandalf and Denethor cross Anduin victorious and invest Minas Morgul. Gandalf and Aragorn come to Moranon and Parley. So, Denethor, still alive and kicking. 
right? Um, and he is still not palantiring at all, right? Denethor still learns at the same time everybody else does what's about stuff that happens. So the two armies, the two flanking armies in the north and south have been defeated, the army in the north by the ants, the army in the south by the shadow host, meaning, I believe, Aragorn's troops from the paths of the dead, right? Um, Gandalf and Aragorn come to Moranon and Parley. Why... Gandalf and Denethor learn... Presumably Aragorn could tell them, right? They don't need a messenger to come in and tell them about the defeat of the flank by the shadow host. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Kevin, it's unclear what role Denethor has here. We still get Minas Morgul invested, so I th- maybe Denethor is going to stay in charge of that while Gandalf and Aragorn come to the Moranon, so Denethor isn't with them anymore, so it's going to be Denethor, not Faramir, who's going to be left to invest Minas Morgul? Maybe. Like, has Aragorn claimed the, kin- the kingship? Is that tense or anything? We don't really know. The character of Denethor is still fairly unclear at this point, at least from the outlines. Okay, then, return to Frodo and Sam. Um... At this point, the overwriting in ink ceases, perhaps because my father saw that at this rate he was going to be very hard put to it to complete the story in book five and last. In the penciled underlying text, he had had this program for the last seven chapters. 48. Gandalf comes to the Black Gate. Again, presumably with his army and not in Feanorian style. 49. Frodo and Sam come to Orodruin. 50. Something and something return. That is so tantalizing. I really wish we knew who returned and to where. But chapter 51 is the feast at Minas Tirith. So, um, Frodo and Sam? Uh, 50 is like the field of Cormallon? Guessing. Hard to hard to know for sure there. Then we return to the feast at Minas Tirith. This is what will later be the wedding of Aragorn, right? But Aragorn is still conspicuously spouseless at this point, right? Uh, Eowyn, who was his only marital prospect previously, uh, is now very conspicuously dead again. Um, so he's got no wife, but that's fine. Um, then we have the funeral, the return to Rivendell. We're meeting with Bilbo. See, we're not just going to have Elrond expositing for a whole chapter. We're going to meet with Bilbo and have Bilbo spout verses. That'll be much better. Sam's book and the passing of all tales. Okay. So there we go. Um, Yeah, Yana, it is really interesting that he is trying to do the whole story um, uh, interlinked like that. Yeah, I agree. Okay, all right. So this is the new the nineteen forty six outline. All right, this is this is the new plan. Last chapters still kind of vague. Right, got to work on that. Notice what's conspicuously missing: the Shire, 
right? The Shire got a chapter in the earlier chapter outline. It's not even getting a chapter here. We're just returning to Rivendell and from Rivendell jumping to Sam's book. So presumably what happens in the Shire is going to get covered there in chapter 54, but a little uncertain. All right. Um, the next few chapters, which I'll, I'll try to go through relatively quickly, I found interesting for sometimes from, for kind of small reasons. But again, what I really like to see as I'm going through is like where we see the glimpses that we get of the way the story is developing, how the story is changing big picture in Tolkien's mind. Okay, Aragorn takes Legolas and Gimli and Merry and proposes that what is left of the company shall be reunited. He says his heart now urges him to speed, for the time of his own of this of his own revealing approaches. They may have a hard and dangerous journey, for now the real business is beginning, besides which the Battle of the Hornberg is but a skirmish by the way. They agree, and Aragorn and his company leave Dolbaran ahead of the king at about midnight. Merry rides with Aragorn and Gimli with Legolas. They go fast and reach Westfold at daybreak and, struck out at once, do not turn aside but go straight. See the second Nazgul flying. Um, okay, so... What's interesting about this? Uh, apart from the relatively simple fact that... Well, I say it's a relatively simple fact that Mary is with him and, and Mary is not left with Theoden. That's a little bit of a big deal, considering that he had already been contemplating having... Now, I, I should say... Uh, I should clarify first that um, this passage Christopher Tolkien points to as a kind of aberration, right? That is, he, he doesn't... Uh, uh, the, the line of thought that Tolkien is considering here in this passage is deviating from the outline that he's already written and doesn't go anywhere, right? Um, but passages like this, to me, are actually of sort of particular interest. I'm really interested to see what are the things that he's trying out, right? Um, Aragorn as... Aragorn taking charge. Aragorn saying things like, my heart now urges me to speed for the time of my own revealing approaches, right? Um, an Aragorn who has a sense of destiny, of his own destiny, and of his own role as leader of others in fulfilling that destiny, right? Um, I shall go and you shall come with me and we must make haste for the time, you know, the time foretold approaches, right? That... Um, this is very... You know, just, again, think how far this is from Aragorn and Amir go north to beat off orcs, right? Where Aragorn's only role was still primarily just a, 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 a sort of strategic and tactical role. The guy who led the force down into the south in order to defeat the Southrons and then come north to help the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um the increasing sense. And again, we saw that beginning to change with the whole King of the Dead business that we saw growing there without the rest of the dead, of course. Uh, I should, instead of calling the King of the Dead, I should call him the Dead King, right? Um, you know, the resurrection of the Dead King. We, so we saw some of that kind of mythic element before. We see it now. We see more of it now, right? We see it much more clearly in Aragorn talking this way. Um, 
notice that in this version he seems to be skipping the you know return to Helm's Deep and the looking into the Palantir yet right the uh, uh, the time of the revealing approaches but it isn't yet apparently so he's not going to look into the Palantir yet um, I'm also very interested in this concept of beside which the Battle of the Hornburg is but a skirmish by the way um, this sense of this de- the deliberateness with which Tolkien is speaking of the story opening out right Battle of Helm's Deep was a really big deal. But it's not this next battle is not just going to be a recapitulation. It's not going to be anything like the same it's not going to be like anything like the same scale. Right? It's going to be way, way bigger. Um and to put that into Aragorn's mouth, right? So the Aragorn has a clear sense that that's what's happening and that's where they're headed. Okay. Anyway. Um so again, to me, this is more about you know a lot of the details are going to change. He's not going to he's not going to do that. He's not going to bring Mary along. He's not going to be trying to bring the band back together. But again, what interests me most about that is to see how Aragorn's Aragorn's character has grown a lot in the two years since we last saw him, and that to me is really interesting. Here's Pippin. On the street, I loved the Burgle sequence, the original Burgle sequence. Who's not Burgle? He's Gwyn here, right? Um, so when he meets the kid on the street, uh, and they end up staring each other down, he's a stranger, right? He's not gone looking for him. He doesn't know his dad, right? He's just a random kid that he runs into in the road. A sword, have you? Said Gwyn here. Then you must be a soldier, though you don't look like one. I am, and I do not indeed, said Pippin. But when you have seen more than ten years... Ah, he's right, he's digging at him for being only ten years old. If you live long enough, young friend, and survive the days that are coming, you will learn that folk are not always what they seem. Why, you may take me for a kind-hearted fool and a fool of a stranger lad, but I am not. I am a hobbit, and the devil of a hobbit, companion of wizards, friend of Ents, member of the company of nine of whom your lord Boromir was one, of the... of the nine, I should say. And I was the battle... And I was at the battle of the Bridge of Moria and the Sack of Isengard, and I wish for no wrestling or rough play. So let me be, lest I bite. Aye, aye, said Gwynhir. You do sound fierce, a ferret in the garb of a rabbit. But you have left your boots behind, master, maybe because you have outgrown them too quickly. Come on, good ferret, bite if you like. And he... something up his fists. But at that moment a man came out of the door and sprang down into the street and grabbed the lad by the back of his tunic. <laughs> oh man, dad comes and he's... Uh, poor... Uh, poor Gwynhir is getting... Um, uh, is getting... Uh, uh, is going to get whooped. Um, Ariel, yeah, Pippin is building his uh, his resume here, right? Pippin's boasting, right? And I love the way that, like the the way that he is. Um, first of all, we get the a Hobbit and the Devil of a Hobbit. Right? That's really cool. Uh, companion of wizards, friend of Ents, member of the company of the Nine. Uh, friend of Ents, I can't help but remember like the friend of bears and the guest of eagles, right? I mean, it sounds kind of like uh, Bilbo's boasting to Smaug, right? Bilbo's names. Um, but then it segues out, right? Uh, it, it ceases to be 
it's it's not riddling talk anyway. But but again, it's it, it seems to be just sort of to the things I have done. Right, I was at the Battle of the Bridge of Moria, and I was at the sack of Isengard. Um, interesting that the Bridge of Moria he chooses to mention, right? Gwyn here, uh, the ten-year-old kid on the streets of Minas Tirith, isn't going to know anything about any of those things. Um, but, um... Uh... <laughs> Karina says, a ferret in the garb of a rabbit. Uh, and she was adding, be right back, I just found my new Twitter bio. Yeah, that, 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 that would be good. That would be good. Um, and James, yeah, the connection between hobbits and rabbits is back. It's, we've not seen that since The Hobbit, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's a really, that's a really cool thing. Um, so yeah, so interesting that this seems to be Pippin genuinely rising to the, with Burgo, you get, you know, in the published text, you get the sense he's putting it on from the beginning, right? Um, he's not really boasting. He's just he's just uh uh you know having it on with Burgle whom he know like he exploiting the fact that he knows who Burgle is and Burgle doesn't know who he is, right? Or at least he suspects who Burgle is by that time and he's gone looking for him there in order to try to find him. Um here, this is again this is a random kid in the street. But it gets even better. Because of course when uh Thalion, who is the name of, of Gwynhir's father, uh, gives him a whack on the backside and is threatening to haul him off for a beating um, uh, for talking to a stranger like a young orc. Pippin intercedes for him. Nay, nay, not like an orc, Master Thalion, if that be your name, said Pippin. I have seen enough orcs and all too close to be in any error. Here is nothing but a warlike lad spoiling for something to do. Will you not let him walk with me for a while and be my guide? For I am new come, and there is much to see while the sun still shines. I have already heard that the halflings are courteous of speech, if that one that came hither with, with Mithrandir is a sample, said Thalion. Yes, indeed, the young ruffian shall go with you if you wish. Go now and keep a fair tongue in your head, he said to Gwynhir, giving him a smart blow on his seat. But see that he returns ere the closing hour in the dusk. I wanted a game," said Gwynhir to Pippin as they set off. "There are few of, la- of there are few lads of my age in this quarter, and such as there are are no match for me. But my father is stern, and I was near to a beating just now. When he says orc, 'tis an ill omen for one's back. But you got me off very finely, and I thank you. What shall I show you? Um, I. The meeting with Burgo in the published text. Is I mean, I like it. It's good. This is kind of cooler, right? I mean, I really like Pippin meeting up with this random street urchin, almost, you know, getting into this, uh, uh, you know, into this uh, 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 boasting battle with him. Uh, you know, like two Anglo-Saxon warriors boasting of their own prowess and resumes before, you know, entering into a fight. Uh, and then switching around as the kid is getting in trouble and coming to the defense of the kid and making him his guide and get, you know and uh, uh, getting him out of trouble is really neat. Uh, I really, uh, I really like this. Um, Yana, it's not clear whether the kids are mostly being evacuated yet. 
Um, I would assume they are... Remember, you know, Christopher Tolkien in this chapter is operating under the premise of assume it's like the... You know, memory said explicitly, assume it's like the published text unless I say so. Um, so, and he didn't say anything about the evacuation. So I'm guessing that the reason there are not many kids... Um, left in the city is because they're, they are being evacuated. But, you know, the way that he says that there, there are few lads of my age in this quarter, and such as there are are no match for me, does make it sound like there aren't that many kids that live there ever. Not necessarily that there aren't any kids left in the city, um, but I think that there is quite likely there an allusion to um, the sort of the comparative childlessness in the city. Uh, that seems to me very possible. Um, yeah, I agree, Yana. He wouldn't phrase it that way if he had a whole bunch of friends and they had, they had all been evacuated. Um, again, I still don't think there's any reason not to think that the evacuation is happening. Um, but I agree with you that Gwynhir, son of Thalion's comment, um, that there are not, that there are a few lads of my age in this quarter is, uh, a token of the, the small and geriatric, comparatively small and geriatric population of, uh, of Minas Tirith, rather than an allusion to the evacuation. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, anyway, I thought that was fun. Um, last point is about, uh, Pippin Sachs. This was really cool, and there, this is one of those small points, but uh, a couple interesting things about this. So Denethor says of P- Pippin's sword, "Surely it is a sax wrought by our own fold in the our own folk in the north in the deep past, where the return of the king has blade and kindred. So surely it is a blade wrought by our own kindred in the north in the deep past, is what it says in the return of the king. Surely it is a sax wrought by our own folk in the north." The word sax, uh, Old English saox, dagger, short sword, was the final choice in the draft after rejection of blade, knife, and dagger. Um, two really cool things about this here, about Tolkien's very deliberate and, and deliberated choice uh, to use the word sax to describe Pippin's uh, weapon. Thing number one. That Tolkien is going to try to bring this word back is kind of awesome, actually. Seax is the Anglo-Saxon word for sword um, uh, or dagger. It's it's a it's a it's a very common word in Anglo-Saxon, um, but nobody has used that word to describe a knife in a long time. It's just not a modern usage. It's not even uh, it's not even a. a uh, an archaic usage. It's just like not a usage, right? Um, this is, this seems to be Tolkien just flat trying to bring an Anglo-Saxon word into the modern vernacular, right? He's just gonna, he's just gonna resuscitate this word almost completely from scratch. Again, not from scratch in the sense of he's making it up, um, but uh, this is like Tolkien deciding, you know. That old Anglo-Saxon word "sax" is the perfect word here. I'm just going to use it. I'm just going to. I'm just going to bring it into modern usage and forget the fact that nobody's going to have any idea what I'm talking about. 
Um, so, uh, um, so yeah, that's, that's, um, uh, just kind of cool that Tolkien's thinking of doing that. But the second thing that's interesting to that, uh, about that to me is <clears throat> the fact that he is using, he is putting this sort of egregiously archaic word into the mouth of Denethor. <clears throat> and here I think, remember how in the early drafts, um, uh, he he especially in the back in the Faramir chapter, how he had the men of Gondor speaking in these elaborately archaic terms, right? So, to make the the difference of the diction of the Gondorians very noticeably different from the 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 talk of the hobbits, right? So Frodo and Sam sounded totally different uh, from the Gondorians back there, at the, and he he backed off from that, right? Faramir's language, uh, his diction got more and more modern, a little bit more formal, but um, not conspicuously sort of archaic sounding. Fairly quickly. This suggests to me that he's still not totally abandoned that idea, right? That Denethor, the, you know, the Lord of Minas Tirith, would be the one to kind of reach back for this really obscure word. Um... Uh, again, obscure to certainly obscure to to all modern readers. So um, anyway, I just you know does this suggest that he's still playing with that? You know, is he still wanting to kind of embed into their language? Now it's interesting, of course, also that he's in reaching back for a really archaic word. He's reaching back for a really archaic Anglo-Saxon word to put into uh, into Denethor's mouth, which is a little bit interesting in itself, right? But um, but anyway. Uh, it's just kind of a fun moment. I, I, I uh, not a big portentous story development issue, uh, but a really, uh, a, a really fun moment that I didn't want to leave behind. All right, and with that, we are caught up. Yes, sir. So proceed on to chapters four and five for next time, and uh, we will. Uh, uh, we'll continue on through that. Uh, we'll return to Harrowdale and, and, and get things in order uh, as we continue to move through Book 5 to the point where maybe Tolkien will finally admit defeat and realizes that he's going to need a Book 6. So anyway, thanks everybody for joining me tonight, and I will see you guys again next week. Um, thanks everybody. Good night now. <laughs>